Is there a way we can protect our kids from drugs and from running with the crowd that does them? Contrary to popular opinion, this peer problem is not new. Solomon warned parents about this danger 900 years before Jesus Christ. Turn in your Old Testament to Proverbs 1, 8-19, and let's join Dave Wardson, our Truth Encounter study leader, and discover how we can protect our kids from drugs, gangs, and violence. Several years ago, I had the opportunity to go down to Brazil where Dave and Cindy Cox are ministering, and it was at a missions conference and every year, the World of Life staff will go, and they'll um, go to, a, like, a hotel. Well, this year, they went to Santos, which is the harbor city, really the beach city for Sao Paulo, Brazil, one of the largest cities in the world. And I would teach in the morning with a translator, and then in the afternoon, the missionaries and all the native Brazilian staff would have all their planning meetings in Portuguese. And so there wasn't anything for me to do. I couldn't understand what they're talking about anyway. So uh, the boys and I, Jonathan was about 10 at the time. Joel was about 8. We got to go swimming in the ocean all afternoon. It was just an incredible time. In fact, it was this, it was kind of a deep ravine that where the waves would roll in and there were big cliffs on either side. And you could actually look out about a quarter of a mile and you could see the waves uh, coming in. You can almost judge how big the breakers were. That They were actually rolling in about 8 to 12 feet, which is a big wave in the ocean, especially for body surfing. In fact, hardly any of the Brazilians were running these waves. But man, it was like heaven on earth for Jonathan and Joel and I. Man, we got out there and man, it was the best body surfing I've ever done of my life. In fact, you get up in one of those big waves, it was like riding a big wall. In fact, it would ride you so long, you'd actually have to, you know, get your head up and get another breath of air, especially just before it cracked down and it would shoot you about 75 yards, just like you were shot out of a gun. Well, all these Brazilians were on the beach. You know, these parents are horrified. Here I am with these two little toe-headed, blind-headed kids, and we're swimming in all this treacherous, this treacherous stuff. But actually... We didn't start out riding big breakers 8 to 12 feet high in Santos. They actually started down here in Galveston with those little podong two-foot waves and stuff when they were little bitty kids. First of all, they had to learn how to swim. And they had to learn how to do the Australian crawl and learn how to do the breaststroke. And then they went down to Galveston. And when they were just wee little bitty kids, you know, just beginning to, you know, after they learned to walk, we'd take them out in the ocean and you'd show them, you know, that, that that's the undertow. And we'd let them feel that pull and, and that sweep out into the ocean. And then they got used to it. They learned how to do that more. And slowly but surely, as we went from small waves about a two foot high to three foot high to five feet high, they learned those skills that were necessary so that that day what would be really dangerous to a lot of people to them was just a big blast and they were having a great time that's what i'm going to talk to you about today in a lot of ways that's a picture of what your heavenly father wants to do with you the heavenly father wants you eventually to be able to swim out there in the big ocean of life and moms and dads the Heavenly Father wants you to train your kids to be able to go out there and invade the world. He doesn't want them to live. He wants them to be distinct from the world. He wants them to be innocent from the evil of the world. But eventually the Lord wants your children to grow up and be able to go out there and really make it and bring glory to him in the big world. 
But if you're going to do that, you need to know about undertows. When you're body surfing, the, the tremendous pressure of those big waves, that, you know, that 10-foot wall of water, and when it cracks down, it's a tremendous power. But there's a tremendous power going back out into the ocean. And that's called the undertow. And that'll just sweep you not towards the beach, but it pushes you out, out into the ocean. And so one of the things when you're teaching someone to body surf, you need to get them ready for that undertow because they need to learn, you know, not to fight that, you know, how to work with that, how to get out of it. And if they don't, people drown. And every year down here in Texas, we have people drowned because they get caught in the undertow. Well, I want to talk to you this morning about one of life's major undertows. Every one of us at one time or another is going to face a con man, a criminal. They're committed deep into their heart to what is evil, what is destructive. And every one of our kids, from the time, for example, when you're in middle school, you're going to start having a group of kids, usually that have older brothers and sisters, that start running a fast life. And they start smoking marijuana. They start being able to have access to coke. And they'll even move on to heavier things. In Midlothian, the, the drug of choice is primarily alcohol. And so when you're in middle school, obviously you're not 21 yet, so you can't drink. So there's a mystery to that. So there will be a bunch of kids, often with their parents helping them out, because some kids, you know, parents that grew up in the 70s, and they're into smoking marijuana, and they're drinking alcohol. It's kind of the in thing. Or some older brother and sister are doing it. The younger kids start feeling this is really, really cool. And parents, you need to just realize that when my son Josh went to ninth grade, which was many years ago, I'm sure it's worse now, he could get any drug that he wanted to right in his freshman year. And the kids in high school, like, they, they know the drugs. Your kids will probably know the drugs better than the teacher that's instructing them about drugs. So the idea that if you give these kids the right knowledge, they'll figure it out, that's half the fun of it. If you have the right knowledge and you know how dangerous it is, that's half the fun of actually doing it, unless you have your head screwed on right, unless you're thinking through. So as parents, you, need to, you really need to understand this is where we're at. Right here in our own church, there were kids taking drugs. As Josh was coming up, there were older kids in our church that were taking drugs. And that's just the way life is. When I went to a Christian school, buried in the middle of 300 acres of oranges, and our parents thought we were way away from sin, there were kids that were drinking, and there were kids that were taking drugs. Way, way back, you know, back in the covered wagon days. <clears throat> so what you need to realize is this is the society you're going to live in. You say, so you say as a parent, what am I going to do about this? Well, what I want to teach you today is we need some parents that get right out there and like, I got my boys, I didn't say you're not going to ever swim in the ocean. I don't want you ever to go near the ocean. When they were little bitty kids, I started teaching them about the ocean. I started teaching them what the ocean could do. I talked to them about the really bad undertows that were out there. As you turn to Proverbs chapter 1, verse 8, you have the precious privilege of having a really skillful dad and mom show you how they get their kids ready to resist the octopus that's trying to grab a hold of you and pull you into a life of crime. Now, in, the, in Solomon's day, taking, you know, join, you know, taking drugs in middle school and getting drunk, I'm sure they were doing a lot of getting drunk, but the big thing in Solomon's day wasn't so much the drug culture, it was to get a, join a band of bandits. 
to become part of a group like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, Bonnie and Clyde, only the ancient equivalent of that. Remember Jesus told the story of the man going down to Jericho that got beat up by a bunch of highway robbers. That's exactly all over Israel. For many, many years, there was that element that was given to violence, just like in our culture today. In our culture, it comes through like as gangs. As Midlothian grows, there'll be more and more of a gang influence. The gang influence isn't new. It's right here. What are you going to do about it as a parent? How are you going to get your kids ready for that? This father and mother, look what they do. They, in verse 8, they start right out. They say, come, my son. Listen, my son, to your father's instruction. One of the things we need in this church family is we need some fathers that say, I want you to listen to your father. And the word that the NIV translates instruction is a very strong word. I want you to listen, my son, to your father's commandments. Daddies, you hold the moral, spiritual key to your home. If you are a wishy-washy male that's passive, that doesn't know what your standards are, your kids are going to get caught in the undertow a lot of times. You as dad told the key. This daddy, we, we really need parents that are not afraid to say this is the way life is. I don't care what you believe about things today. I'm going to teach you the truth about life. And I've lived longer than a lot of you. So what I'm going to tell you, you can, you can do whatever you want to in middle school, do whatever you want to in high school, do whatever you want to in college, but I'm going to tell you the truth about the way life works. And you're only going to get to live your wife life one time. And I'm a daddy, a pastor, teacher that's going to tell you, I'm going to give you some commandments today. I'm going to give you some standards. This is the way life is. This is reality. It doesn't make any difference whether your teachers believe it. It doesn't make any difference whether your best friend believes it. You're going to have to think hard. What am I going to commit myself to? What am I going to believe? And this daddy starts out, he says, son, I want you to listen to me. Which means that he has a daddy that's spending time with his son. So daddy's one of the things you need to do. You don't get the chance to be able to say, now son, listen to me, unless you're spending some time with your kids. And when your kids are little boys and little girls, they really want to spend time with you and they'll listen to you. But if you don't have time for them to help you when you're working on that car, when they don't know all the wrenches and they don't know all the tools, and you get mad at them and you cuss them out and tell them to go get lost, they'll figure it out. By the time they're 11 years old, if you told them, get lost, kid, get lost, kid, get lost, kid, they're smart enough by 11 to know, dad doesn't want to spend time with me. That's real important because Satan's working on you dads to reject your kid right at the time that they're really open to you. In fact, one of the things that's going to happen is when they get to be about 13, the way that life goes, they need to start moving away from you a little bit, which is why we have a youth group. Which is why, because they start needing to transition into becoming adults. So a lot of you dads, you need to get in there because you're teaching a lot of what I'm sharing with you before they're like 12. In our culture, I might even say 10. You got to get in there with them during those years when they want to spend time with you. You go hunting with them. You go camping with them. In our church family, we're never going to get on you dads for not showing up every Sunday on Sunday morning if you're out there doing some real relational things with your family, with your kids. That's what our church family is about. Because if you can't say to your kids, I want you to listen to me, if you don't have a relationship with them. I want you moms to see you're engaged as well. This father says, I want you to listen to your father's instructions, his commandments, his moral pronouncements about the way life really works. The next statement says, and I want you not to forsake your mother's Torah. That's the word teaching. And remember, the word Torah doesn't mean just law. It means to point out the way. 
When I was a little bitty kid going to elementary school, we actually could walk to school in New Jersey. I don't know if you could be safe to do that now, but I'll never forget when I was five years old, when I went to school, my mom actually took me outside the yard. It was two blocks to get to my elementary school. She put her arm around me. She knelt down. She said, Dave, it's two block David. She called me then. David Booth, it is. Now you know my middle name. David Booth, it is two blocks that way. And she pointed out the way. All of my life, my mom, until I was 13 when I went away from home, my mom pointed out the way. In fact, a lot of my moral training moms came from my mom. She was sick. She had like 25 operations, no evangelistically speaking. She raises over and over again. The ambulance would arrive at our house, and my mother was taken away. She had terrible upbringing. She had real problems when she was a little kid. Her health was horrible. So her whole life, she was, and my dad was never around because he was out preaching a lot. And so she prepared us kids to do things on our own. And I would come home from school, my mom would be in bed, and I would go up and my mom would teach me like I'm teaching you now. And she, as a New York raised kid, she would share with me, this is the way life works, this is what people are going to do. And so she pointed out the way. She pointed out the way. My dad was super spiritual. Like, you know, he, you know, to him, you know, it's, not, it's easy to have a quiet time and, and you know, it's easy to resist sin. But my mom was very practical and realistic. And so she would teach us. And remember, she would take me in New York City when my, when my legs got really jumpy and we'd walk down Broadway when I was like eight years old. And she would point out the names of all the Broadway shows, and then she would use that as an object lesson to teach me about life. She'd take me into a coffee shop and let me see all these showgirls coming out with their mascara dribbling down off their face and let me look at them up close. And she'd say, you see, it looks really glamorous, but I want you to listen to why they talk, and I want you to look at what they really look like, and I want you to see as they grow older the sadness in their eyes, and it looks really happy and really exciting, but you need to realize it's not going to last. That kind of a lifestyle. She taught me all this kind of stuff. We'd see drunks lying on the, I, New York was a lot rougher back then. You'd see drunks lying out just with their clothes ripped up. And mom would teach me about that stuff. She pointed out the way in life. Moms and dads need to unite. You need to decide in your own heart where you're going to go, what your spiritual standards are going to be, the love relationship you're going to have with Jesus. And then you need, you dads need to say, this is the way life is. You need to be the strong one in your home. You need to be explaining your spiritual and moral values. And then mom, you need to be right behind those dads, pointing out the way, explaining it. You say, the kids always tell me, well, why should I do this? How do you, how do kids, how do you, when you ask your parents why, what do your parents respond with? How many of you kids have said, your parents tell you to do something, they give you instruction, you go, why, dad, mom? Any kids ever done that? How do your parents respond? Parents, how do you all respond? Because I said so, okay? Now, parents, there's going to be some things. When your kid is two and he asks you in his baby talk if he can crawl in front of an 18-wheeler, just tell him no and give him a good squat on his rear end, and we'll have a talk on discipline later. You just say no. But one of the things as a parent that you need to realize is the why question is the question you're looking for. Every good teacher versus an authoritarian teacher that doesn't really know what they're talking about, every good teacher is coveting the question why. When your child asks you why, that is your chance. And this parent says, because, why should you listen to me? 
And the father and mother say, they say, because it will be a garland to grace your head and a necklace to grace your neck. What is it talking about? What it's saying is this father and mother is saying, if you listen to what I'm going to say, if you're an athlete, then it's going to be like you earned an Olympic gold. When I was in high school, in order to letter, the only way to letter was you had to make the first team in the three major sports, like baseball, basketball, and football. And so it was a private school, and it wasn't like you could just play varsity. You had to make it in every sport. And actually, my junior year, there was only two of us that had letters from our sophomore year. And it was like it was back in the dorky days where you wore white sweaters with a great big blue D on it. And yet I remember, man, that was like a badge of honor. That's what this parent is saying is it's that equivalent in your culture. A lot of you were raised in a day where when the football players wore the big leather jackets, they give them to their girlfriend. That was a really big thing. Now you have other status systems, but, but that's the idea. If you listen to your parents, it's not going to be like a stupid letter jacket, which one day into college, my letter sweater went in the tank, and I've never worn it again because you're an idiot to wear a letter sweater from high school and college. So it's gone quickly. But the things that my mom and dad taught me that were true, that I obeyed, became like, a, a, like an Olympic gold that's a badge in my life. And that's what it's talking about. For you girls, it's talking about like a necklace that's around your neck. And what it's saying is like when a girl gets ready for a big prom and she gets a beautiful dress, if she's really with it, she wears just the right necklace for that dress. And when she walks in, hardly any of the guys notice it, but all the girls notice when the girl has just the right necklace to compliment it and she is honored because things are the way they ought to be. What the writer is saying here is if you listen to what we're teaching you today, it's going to put character in your life and everybody around you is going to look at your life and you're going to be honored. When you go for that job interview, you'll have a quality in your life that the person interviewing will connect with that. It's really the way life works. As you begin to work with people, whatever job you're in, people will say that's a person to be treated with heaviness, with importance. They have something in their life. That's what the writer is saying. Then he starts to go for the nitty-gritty. The very first thing he talks to his kid is like he jumps right into the big problem. He says, how do you protect your kids against really con men that want to get your kids into a life of criminal activity, getting money illicitly? So look what he said. He says, listen to my son. If sinners entice you, don't give in. There's a father right away. Remember I told you a father not afraid to get no? To say no, he starts right in and says, this is the way life works. As you kids go out into life, you're going to face this kind of an individual. They are a con man. They usually have really nice clothes. They drive really nice cars, but they use the same line. They've used the same lines for the last 3,000 years. This text is 3,000 years old. The father and mother say now if criminals, the word sinners in this context stands for, for criminals. It's like Psalm 1. Don't stand, walk, or sit in the way with sinners. The word sinners in Psalm 1 doesn't mean for all have sinned. In that verse, it's talking about a very specific individual that's really turned away from God, is living their life for values totally opposed to reverencing him, okay? And what it says, listen, mom and dad, it says your kids are going to face this guy. They're going to face him. So you need to get ready. The the father didn't say, well, this might happen. He says, when sinners entice you, and the word for entice means this word for being open-minded. The criminal comes on to you, man, you need to experience life. When you go away to college, the big thing in American universities is, this is your one chance to do all the things that you thought you could never do. 
You've got four years where all the exceptions are off. You can do what you want to spiritually, with dru- with sexually. You can do what you want to spiritually. You can do what you want to with drugs and alcohol. You can just experiment because we're all going to play around. We're all 18 to 21, and there will be no consequences. That's a lie. That is a lie. If you take the wrong drugs as an 18-year-old at the University of Texas and you get a bad reaction in your body, you're going to get sick just like anyone else. There's no exceptions. The criminal con man always tries to say, be open-minded. This is a time for experimentation. Those old values you learn in small Hicktown Midlothian don't apply here in Big Austin or in Big College Station or down in Waco or on and on it could go or up in Norman, wherever you might go, or even at your Christian school at DBU. The con man always says you need to be open-minded, and that's what the word means. The con man tries to seduce the person. He, look what he said. He says, I want you, my son, my son, don't give in when they try to entice you. Now, what are they going to say? And this is what you need to learn to do with parents. What I love about this daddy is he role plays. And what he says to his son, he says, okay, I'm going to be the person that's going to come on to you from the drug culture in school, and this is the way it's going to go. And so the father and the kid's going, dad, are you kidding me? He says, yeah, I'm going to be the bad guy. I'm going to pretend to be the bad guy. The father lays out, this is the way you're going to be pulled into the undertow of crime. The first thing he begins with, it goes like this. If they say, this is the criminal speaking, come along with us. Let's lie in wait for someone's blood. Let's waylay some harmless soul. Let's swallow them alive like the grave and whole like those who go down to the pit. What is he talking about? This is a highway robber. And what he starts out is saying, you need to join our gang and we're going to get in the bushes and we're going to waylay some poor, harmless, stupid idiot who's not going to be able to resist this. They're going to be unsuspecting. The tough guy always picks on someone that they think can't retaliate. It always works that way. And what the idea is, we're going to swallow them whole alive as, as death. The idea is when death comes knocking on your door, it's like a pit that you fall into. And none of us except Jesus is strong enough to resist it. And this is the enticement of power. Every one of you want to believe I'm invincible. This is the very first thing that you need to watch out to with sin. When you're young, you think it will never happen to me. I'm invincible. Everyone else might die, but I'm not going to die. And there's something really exciting about getting right on the edge. How many of you have ever done something wrong because you said, we will never get caught? We blew cherry bombs when I was a kid in middle school. We had a marvelous place to blow them. There was, like a, there was a big garage. The entryway into that garage went down into a four-cornered place with concrete walls all around. It had pipes at the bottom of that wall. You could, chuff, you could stuff cherry bombs up in there. It went off like it was like World War II. And my gang in middle school, we would get a bunch of cherry bombs, which is totally against the rules in New Jersey. It's not like Texas, man... Fireworks in New Jersey with millions of people around were a no, 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 no. But I remember we'd all get together as little 12-year-old kids, man, just before I went away to Florida in high school. I remember saying, man, our gang, man, we got all these cherry bombs and, we, and we'll never get caught. I remember one time cramming them in there, man, we, we were having World War II. Suddenly we see the police coming way around there. Man, I have never run so hard in all my life. Man, I ran, I ripped my shirt jumping over fences and everything. It scared the woolly dead of me. We were going to get caught. How many of you ever got in trouble like that? How many of you have stories like that? 
All of you do. Every one of you in this room does about have stories like that. And it's all this idea we're invincible. Whenever you're in a gang and someone says we'll never get caught, every kid in this room needs to go. There need to be big red lights. Bonnie and Clyde were invincible in the early 30s. They went down to Ranger, Texas. You know where Bonnie and Clyde got their weapons? They got their weapons from the United States government. They broke into the Ranger United States Armory. They got brawning automatic rifles and steel-penetrating bullets, and that's where they got their ammunition. They were invincible in the early 1930s. When a newspaper boy put, had a newspaper headline, Bonnie and Clyde strike again, they sold newspapers like they were coming out of their ears. They loved it. And it was right here. Bonnie and Clyde lived right here in Midlothian. They never robbed the bank in Midlothian. They robbed the bank down in Venus. I'm going to tell you in a minute, they robbed the bank in Lancaster. They never robbed the bank in Midlothian. In fact, when I moved here, they used, that was the big thing. They showed us the house where Bonnie and Clyde lived. In the early 30s, they were invincible. That's the very first thing you need to teach your kids, mom and dad. And if your parents don't do it, kids, I'm doing it this morning. Whenever you're in a gang and someone says, hey, we'll never get caught, it's a lie. And it needs to go off in your head like a red light. Watch out, I'm, I'm in the undertow. The second thing the criminal promises you is instant wealth. You see, the criminal always promises you don't have to work for money. You don't have to sweat for money. We can get it easy. Look what the con man says. In, in Proverbs chapter 1, he says this. We will get all sorts of valuable things, in verse 13. And we'll fill our houses with plunder. The idea here is we're going to be like a marauding band of soldiers. We're going to go in and attack the city, and then we're going to be able to take all the loot, get all the gold, get all the stuff, and it'll be mine. Just like Jesse James would rob a train, get all the stuff. That's the idea. But it's this whole idea of instant wealth. As you go through the book of Proverbs, Proverbs is going to tell you that there's a wealth that comes to you because you slowly save it, you slowly work for it. As you're slowly accumulating it, you develop the character from God so you're able to handle it. But the con man is always trying to get you to do it the easy way. Right here in this room, some of you have played that game. In other words, you said, man, I don't have to work. I don't have to go the hard way. I don't have to, you know, put in eight hours a day. I can get it easy. The way it will work is a guy might come up to you. He's a senior in high school. He drives a really fancy car. He has a really sharp-looking girl, and he sees you bagging groceries. When I go, I love to go to the grocery stores in in Midlothian because I see a bunch of our kids, and it's a good way to touch base with them. They're all bagging groceries, and some of our older guys are doing that as well, but there's often teenagers doing that. Well, a drunk guy's going to come on to you and say, aren't you tired of carrying out brown paper sacks for older ladies? Man, I've got just the thing for you. Got a great party. You need to come Saturday night. And your parent, you say, man, mom and dad will never let me go. You say, listen, you just tell your mom and dad that you're going to come over to my house. My mom and dad will clear it, but they're going to be gone. As soon as you come to my house, we'll be cleared to go to the party. So mom and dad are never going to find out. So you go to the party, and at the party, they begin the party by giving you this little pill that makes you feel better than you've ever felt in your whole life. Man, you're just as high as a kite. And when you get done with the party, they give you something that makes you come down off that. And man, you start doing that pretty regularly. Up. And down. By the way, methylamphetamines, you can just get all the ingredients you need for methylamphetamine lab just right here at Walgreens or CVS. It's all right here. And as a chemistry major, you can set up a methylamphetamine lab in almost any one of your houses or apartments. And so all of Relis County asks the police officers, one of the major things they need to do is watch out for meth labs. And every once in a while, one of them explodes on us. 
But in my years pastoring here in Midlothian, Ellis County periodically becomes a powerful nest for all kinds of methamphetamine labs. A normal thing to do is the idea you, you take meth to get up at parties, then you drink alcohol to come down. You take meth to be high all during the, during the, during the, the weekend, and then you drink alcohol to be able to come down before you go to work. And a bunch of guys at the steel plants, until they put in some strict rules at the cement plants, that's their basic lifestyle. I even worked with some guys. They were high on meth during the weekend, down on alcohol during the week. And man, you don't want to be working construction with guys like that. But that's the same thing. That's the idea. And then you can make tons of money doing that because methamphetamines make big bucks for cheap chemicals. So the guys promise you, listen, if you only do this, in fact, over the years, I've actually had kids that started getting involved in this drug octopus. Some of them have even been pulled off their back porch right in downtown Midlothian, beat up to smithereens. And they said, you tell anybody and your kid brother's going to get it. And just like that, you're in a drug octopus that's going to take your life. And it happens just like that, kids. And that's what the father is telling his son. He says, son, when you hear someone say, we'll never get caught, we're invincible, or when they promise, I got to wait, because the way they get you into easy money is they say, you just make this little drop. All you need to do is take this little bag of stuff in your car, deliver it down here in this section of Dallas. We're going to give you 200 bucks to be able to do that. And man, you could bag groceries for now for the next three weeks, and you're not going to make 200 bucks. And as soon as you hear that, kids, and mom and dad, you teach your kids like this, as soon as you hear, this is easy money, the red lights go off. No, it isn't easy money. Bonnie and Clyde, in the early 1934, they drove right down here in the old highway. You can still ride on it. It goes right into Lancaster. They hit the Lancaster bank. They came bombing out. They had their two girlfriends sitting in a getaway car. They trashed the car that they stole to get the bank money. They threw $100 bills out the cars and everything, this old, these old uh, cars and everyone loved them because they're throwing all this money out. They jumped in with their girlfriend and they sped away. In the early 30s, they were invincible and they had tons and tons of money. The third thing, and this is the most powerful thing of all, the biggest thing that the con man will use, and he doesn't always use all this arsenal. Sometimes he uses just invincibility. We'll never get caught. Sometimes he uses, oh, you're going to have tons of money, the easy way. The third thing is the most powerful thing at all. Look what he said. It says, cast in your lot with us. We will get all sorts of valuable things, but it's in verse 14, it says, throw in your lot with us and we will share a common purse. And kids, this is the most powerful thing of all. Loneliness is the most powerful thing you face as a young person. Loneliness, no friends. When you go away to university and you don't know anybody, one of the worst things in the world is to sit in your dorm room and you're all alone. And every one of you, when you get to be about 11 years of age, you want to break away from mom and dad, and you want a group. One of the things we do in our church, listen, mom and dad, really carefully, we want to use the peer group to produce positive results because your kids are going to start to be influenced by a peer group. And you, the kids decide what peer group they're going to run in. And the criminal con will always promise you, I've got an in-group. And that's what they're saying is, we're going to throw in all of our loot, we're going to have one common purse, and then we'll split it up. And what they're promising, you're going to have companionship, you're going to have a gang. Why do kids join gangs? Because there's no moms and dads there. There's no teachers there. So they have older kids that are powerful, that are evil, that make a gang. And the biggest thing that they give them, and this is true in the drug culture, if you're in the drug culture, you have a family. It's your druggy friends. If you're an alcoholic, you have your alcoholic buddies, your family friends. 
Satan always uses an in-group. When guys get incarcerated and they get involved in criminal activity, sometimes because they didn't listen to what we're talking about, and they, they believe in invincibility, they believe in instant wealth, often when they get out, they throw them right back to their hometown where they did all their stuff because that's where they think they can take care of them. But time and time again through the years, I found out they get right back with their old gang. They just run with their old gang again. Moms and dads, you need to watch your kids for that. Your kids will tell you, well, I'm having a great influence on them. Yeah. Your kids will run the majority of the time with the kids that are closest to their heart. I'm going to say that again. Your kids will run the majority of the time. Now, we need to be connecting. Like, we need to be on football teams, on basketball teams. We need to be in every area of life reaching people for Jesus. But as you're reaching people for Jesus, you need to have people that are part of your gang, which are people that agree with your core values, what your heart is. If you love Jesus, then you're going to have people that love Jesus that you want to connect with. If you don't love Jesus, then you're going to run with someone that loves what you love. And mom and dads, when your kids tell you, they start going up and say, well, I don't like church anymore. You know, Tim's a terrible teacher. He's boring. He preaches too long. And, you know, I don't like that youth group over there. I want to go with these kids. And a whole bunch of you parents go, oh, yeah, that's fine. You know, we don't want to push anything on your kids. You need to ask your kids, what's going on in your heart? You've been involved in a one all these years. You know, what's happening? When you see that shift. Now, it's one thing if they go along, they go into another situation with another group of believers. Kids can do that. And that's fine. But don't you just let them shift and don't believe the stuff, oh, we're just experimenting and I'm not interested in that stuff anymore. As long as they're under your roof, you're responsible to watch their gang. Bonnie and Clyde in the old movie, some of you saw it was made in the 60s, one of the very first, you know, kind of cutting edge movies. A guy right here from Waxahachie made the movie. And in Bonnie and Clyde, Faye Dunaway played the young Bonnie and Clyde Barrow was played by Warren Beatty. They were beautiful. They were handsome. They had their in-group. Bonnie wrote poetry to them. Actually, the real Bonnie did do that. She wrote all this stuff. And it looked like in the 60s, like this is the greatest thing, man. They rob banks. They make love. They have a great time. They have their in-group. They have their gang. Right when the father begins to feel his son, pull, feeling this undertow, feeling this pull, he grabs hold of his son and says, listen, my son, that's the con game. Invincibility, instant wealth, in-group. But it's a lie. Because actually crime is cruel, it is stupid, and it's self-destructive. Look what the daddy said. It's like he grabbed all of us and he said, son, don't go along with them. Don't even take the first step on their path. Don't go to their parties. Don't take the first step down that way of life. Why? Number one, and when, this, when the kid asks why, the parent jumps in there with gangbusters. For their feet rush into sin. They are swift to shed blood. You need to understand that this con man is bloody. They are cruel. Tommy Hobson's grandfather, Mr. Parker, raised him in Crockett, Texas. When Tommy was about two and a half, three, one of his very first memories, he was being held in his grandpa's lap, and Clyde Barrows and Bonnie Parker drove up to their house, their poor house in Crockett, Texas. Clyde never got out of the car, left it running. Bonnie came up. She was 4 foot 11. She weighed 90 pounds. She was dirty. Didn't look like Faye Dunaway. They'd been on the run for two years, and she asked her grandpa for help. 
And her grandfather said, Tommy said, remember him putting Tommy out of his lap, standing up and saying, Bonnie, I'm not going to help you. You need to turn yourself in. And remember his Bonnie spitting and cussing and walking away. And Tommy says, even as a little tiny kid, he remembers the fear on a Sunday afternoon that those guys had as Bonnie and Clyde got back in their car and sped away. The real Bonnie and Clyde went up here to Stringtown, Oklahoma. It was a Saturday night. Bonnie was wearing a flaming red, beautiful dress. She was the talk of the town. It was a big dance. Some of the country boys tried to dance with her. These two city guys that were with her would push them away. When they went back into their car, they, they stole the car of one of the guys that tried to dance with them. The guy that tried to dance with Bonnie called the local deputies and the sheriff, and they went and they, they tried to apprehend the car. And when they got near the car, Maxwell and Moore approached the car. Moore said, this car doesn't belong to you. Clyde lowered a Browning automatic rifle upon that young guy with two little children and blew him into eternity, just like that, and wounded Maxwell. Nine people lay dead before Bonnie and Clyde were apprehended. Mary Jane Bauckham in our church used to talk about when she was a little girl being in Fort Worth, remembers lying in bed, shaking in fear, thinking maybe Bonnie and Clyde. It looks really hot on TV. And when you have gangster shows, when somebody gets killed, they jump up. But in real life, when Browning automatic weapons penetrate your body, that's the end. It's cruel. Bonnie and Clyde are kind of like, you know, Butch Cathy and the Sundance Kid. It's kind of exciting for us. I used to like to talk to Tommy, and Tommy would say, William Parker, his grandfather, would say, you know, Bonnie was so evil, she could, she could machine gun you in the face, step right in the pool of blood, and then spit on you and curse, and never bat an eye. That's how cruel she was. The second thing that the Scripture tells us is that it's useless to spread a net when a bird is watching. Crime is not only cruel, but it's also stupid. If you go bird hunting, you don't wave your hand and say, hey, birdie, birdie, here I am, because they'll fly the way. But with criminals, criminals know. Bonnie and Clyde actually wrote, Bonnie wrote a few months before she was apprehended, we know the law always wins, and it will be death for Bonnie and Clyde. She wrote that right in her diary. Crime is stupid. You're going to get caught. In Shreveport, Louisiana, Henry Methvin, who had become a young partner for Bonnie and Clyde, was in the Majestic Cafe trying to get some sandwiches. Two Shreveport policemen drove their car, came up behind him. Bonnie and Clyde were waiting. The sheriff said he didn't even recognize them. He just saw this young, pretty good-looking couple while Henry Methvin was in. Bonnie and Clyde, Scripture says in Proverbs, the criminal runs even when no one is pursuing. Bonnie and Clyde took off. That's what captured the Shreveport policeman's attention. They chased this couple. Then they began to put two and two together because Bonnie and Clyde were thought to be in the area, and the sheriffs were smart enough to know they were outgunned, so they went back to their Shreveport headquarters. It just so happened that Bob Alcord and Ted Hinton happened to be in Shreveport that day. They knew that Bonnie and Clyde would try to connect with their partner because Henry Methvin left the sandwiches, went out the back, and his daddy lived about 50 miles in the Louisiana kind of forest area. There was only one gravel road back there. They knew that Bonnie and Clyde would try to connect with their partner. So Ted Hinton and Bob Alcorn, who knew Bonnie and Clyde's habits better than their own wives, they'd been chasing them for two years, they went out on that road and they staked them out for two days in the snakes and the bugs and everything else. Finally, they heard the cough of a truck, and they knew it was old man Methvin's truck, and old man Methvin was coming from his place. 
They commandeered the truck, stopped him, and said, do you know where Bonnie and Clyde is? He cursed them. They grabbed a hold of him. They tied him to a tree behind their position, listened to him cuss. They took his truck and flipped, kind of turned it sideways in the road because they'd played this game many times before. Up in North Dallas, Clyde blew right through a big barrier, spraying everybody with automatic weapons. They weren't going to play this game that way again. They, they made it blocked with this, this truck. And they waited, they waited. Finally, about 9, 10 in the morning, they, they could hear this car come, and Clyde always drove with his foot all the way on the floor. Ted Hinton actually grew up with Clyde in South Dallas. He knew Clyde like a friend. And he's bumming along. He had to slow the car. When he got close to the truck, he, he looked. Hinton's partner at Bob Alcorn stood up and recognized that they were policemen. Clyde reached for his Browning automatic weapons, and all the policemen opened up fire. And they used steel-penetrating bullets. Clyde got hit with more than 55 shells. Bonnie's hand was blown off just like that. They put him in the Shreveport mortuary there, and people just lined up to see the gruesome tale of these two guys at end. Crime is cruel. It is stupid, but you need to realize is the wage of the sin is self-destruction. It was true in the 30s. It's still true today. That's the real story. Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway is not a glorious story. And Bonnie and Clyde's bodies, when they were autopsied, were filled with venereal disease, and they wouldn't have lived another two years because they were so sick because of sin. So the father closes. He says, son, that's the way it really is. He says, son, these men lie in wait for their own blood. They waylay only themselves. Such is the end of all who go after ill-gotten gain. It takes away the lives of those who go after it. Mom and dad, what I want to whet your appetite for today, here's the truth about real life. This is the way real gangsters work. This is the way the real drugster works. So you teach your kids. You're going to be conned by invincibility Instant wealth, the in-group. And then you grab a hold of your kid and you tell them stories about, you face them with the truth. One of the things my daddy did, my daddy exposed me to real sin. Didn't let me participate in it, but he let me see real sin. If he could take me to a prison to witness for Christ, he let me talk to real prisoners. I did that when I was a little kid. He took me to the Lower East Side in New York City and let me talk to gangsters and gang kids that had come to know Jesus, and he let me just spend time with them. He talked to me about Henry, Helen Petrell that worked in the Lower East Side that had been in the gangs in Lower East Side for years and years, and then she came to know Jesus, and she had little storefront churches that she was organizing. And my dad went out of his way to expose me to real life with real people to see the real consequences of sin. And oh, I thank God for a dad that was willing to do that. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for Jesus. Lord, I want to pray that you would use what we've shared today to pour life reality into especially our teenagers. I want them to grow up not with the idea that Jesus is out of touch, but that Jesus is the one that's ultimately in touch more than any of us could ever dream of being in touch. And I want to pray that a living, intimate relationship with this incredible Son of God who knows all about con, he knows all about sin, he knows all about it will hurt us. And I'm thankful that he rose again from the dead to give us the power. I want to pray, Lord, that you'd use today's talk to give parents the courage in the midst of a culture that constantly denies that there's any consequences to evil. They constantly deny 
the idea that you can make choices that will really hurt you. I pray, Lord, that especially our children and young people will listen and they'll understand that that's just not true and that Jesus is the one in a book like Proverbs that really spells out the truth. Lord, I just close by praying that maybe one of our teenagers won't take drugs. They'll be able to resist this week some of the con techniques that will be used against them, that their red lights will go off and they'll let your Holy Spirit help them to turn away because they know the truth and the truth will set them free. In Jesus' holy name we pray, amen. For more information on materials available through Truth Encounter, please write to us at Truth Encounter, Box 580, Midlothian, Texas, 76065, or you can contact us on the web at www.truthencounter.com. Our telephone number is one 888 668 7884